professor in college, and he always had this phrase. By the time I got to know him, he was well past his prime. He was having problems seeing, having problems hearing. But one day in chapel, I saw him sitting there with his Bible open. The mic had broken. We couldn't hear a thing. I have really good hearing, and I couldn't hear a thing. But I sat next, next to him, and he had his Bible open, smiling. Just smiling. Afterwards, I asked him about it. I said, did you, not to be rude, Professor, but did you hear anything? And he goes, no, but I saw something. And then he just pointed at the Bible. He went on to use this phrase frequently in his classes, but in that moment, it really hit me hard. The Bible's like a friendship. You will get out of it whatever you put in it. And to some of us, that means that what we want out of the Bible is nothing more than a rule book, and we'll find it. Or a history, and we'll find it. But for those of us who want to have more, the Bible can be that too. As this morning we read a story that many of us have heard several times, we're going to be trying to step into the story to get the most out of the Bible. And I'd invite you, this is one of my shorter sermons, and that means less than 30 minutes, I promise. Actually, I can't promise. I'm pretty sure. But for the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to ask that you open up your hearts and minds and that we really apply this as best we can. Get the most out of it. We're going to do some digging today that is going to be tiring and it's going to be intense. And I'm warning you on the onset, but hang with me because at the end, I promise you, it'll be beautiful. Let's pray together as we start. Father, I come before you this morning thankful for the opportunity I have to be up here. It's humbling to stand before your word. I ask, Lord, that this morning that you work powerfully through this message, that every word that's said is from you, that it resonates on the hearts and minds of people. Overcome my weaknesses as a speaker and allow your words to ring true. For the audience, Lord, I ask that you will help them to hear, have their hearts opened and ready. Allow them to set aside all the concerns and worries of the world around them and truly, in this moment, just be with you through your word. Come into this place, Lord. Challenge, transform, and change us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. I invite you to uh, turn there. And when I say we're going to be there, usually that means we're going to be there for a second and then we're going to skip all over the place. Today, I promise, we're actually going to be there. Now, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, there were six stone jars that were there for a Jewish ceremonial washing each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the very top. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the head steward. And they did. However, when the head steward tasted the water that had been turned to wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called to the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first and the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. Yet you have kept the good wine until now. 
Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, note this, he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. Out of all the miracles that Jesus could have set the stage with, this one is a weird one. It doesn't seemingly compare to the rest of what he would go on to do. We were always taught as speakers that you're supposed to start with a hook, right? Get up in front of people and have a catchy little phrase. I've never been good at those. Or a funny little story or something to engage the audience. So you get them. Out of all the miracles Jesus could have chosen as his miraculous hook, this is the weirdest. He didn't raise the dead as he would go on to do. Cast out a demon as he would go on to do. Heal the sick as he would go on to do. He turned water to wine. And in this way, the glory of God was revealed among man. In order for us to understand the story, we're going to have to, well, understand the story. And understand exactly what's happening here, where it's happening, and set the stage before we can really dive into the scene itself. So let's set the stage. Jesus is in a unique situation. He is the son of God and the son of Mary. And in Jewish custom and in Jewish law, there was a responsibility that was on the oldest child to take care of the family. We know from history and from the church fathers that soon after the Luke 2 story of Jesus in the temple, Joseph died. Jesus' dad. Leaving Mary, three brothers, without anyone. It is for this reason that many historians, myself included, though I do not count myself as a historian, the smart people say, and I am copying them, that, that in this moment, the reason Jesus waited till he was 30 years old to start his ministry is because he spent that 18 years in between the temple and here taking care of his physical family. Think about that for just a second. The son of the living God, the one who spoke the world into existence, sweating over hammers and nails to provide food for his mother. Jesus had been doing that for 18 years at this point. 18 years. Just wanted to check my mental math. Yeah, that's still right. Third time, yes. Okay, we're good. Did not want to embarrass myself there, though I think I did. One thing that's really powerful about this moment is that we lose Jesus in the grandioseness of all the things he would do. I mean, he is the son of God, the Messiah who saved the cosmos. But in this moment, Jesus is the son of Mary, the carpenter, providing for her needs. Jesus would go on in his entire ministry not only to save the entire universe, and not only to defeat death and give us all a chance at heaven, but he also took care of individuals, the forgotten, the poor. In fact, it's fascinating here, spent more time healing individuals than he did the masses. Jesus cared for people, singularly people. That's going to be important in just a moment as we play out this story. So, where were they? Well, we, I've always, so I learned this story, as many of you did, on a felt board, right? In Mr. Comfort's class, in like the third grade, second grade, whenever it was. And the story was laid out, there was this little hovel, right, that was put up on the felt board, and all these like middle-aged men um, that were, for some reason, Caucasian, and also in like Arabian draw. And they were all there, and there was jars, and I was told the story that in a house somewhere in Cana, there was a wedding feast. However, when I got to college and I learned what Cana was, there is no way that's actually what happened. Cana was one of the four poorest areas in Galilee. 
Galilee was one of the poorest areas in Judea. Judea, just to follow suit, was one of the poorest areas in the region. This was a very, very low-class society. There wouldn't have been a hovel big enough for everyone to be invited. So, where did weddings take place? Well, the local religious building. Probably the synagogue. What's even more fascinating is there was only one in Galilee, and it was in Cana. Jesus finds himself at a wedding ceremony in a religious building. Which makes sense because much like our weddings today, back then, weddings were viewed as a blending of the physical and the spiritual. Even weddings outside of faith usually have a faith-based overtone, right? What God separates, let no man pull asunder. It's the blending of physical love with God overseeing it. A blending of God and man. So, just to make sure we're not missing the imagery here. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God among men, goes into a religious building to celebrate God among men. And that is where he chooses his first. And revelation, revelational miracle. He already had several disciples, which I find interesting as well, because all he'd been doing up to this point is hammering away at boards. And yet, he already had at least six disciples. These are not the apostles. We'll meet them in just a little bit. These are someone different. Most likely, people that he had already been teaching. We often believe that Jesus at 12 did this really cool, uh, impactful thing, and then didn't do anything for like 18 years, and then did some more really cool and impactful things. Jesus never stopped working, never stopped teaching, and never stopped being Jesus. Just didn't make it as public as he would later do it. You can imagine as Jesus is sweating over the boards, hammering away at whatever he was working on, and a servant nearby, he's telling him the scriptures. In our culture, in our day and age, we talk politics or sports. That's what we do at the water cooler, right? Did you guys see the Bengals yesterday? Let's go. That's kind of the conversations we have. Joe Burrow's the man. I'm done. No, I'm not. That was amazing. Now I'm done. But back then, what they would talk about is philosophy and religion. That was what everyone talked about. Even the lowest of the low would sit and talk about religion and politics and philosophy, and Jesus was no different. So he would sit around as he's working on boards, and they would be talking about the scriptures, and he would be reinterpreting them left and right, talking left and right, bringing out beautiful stories and parallels. People really liked him. He was already an acclaimed teacher well before his first miracle. And Jesus had already made a name for himself throughout Galilee as an intelligent teacher. Just one person at a time around a water cooler or whatever the first century equivalent was. But here it was time. In the place of religion, in a celebration of God and man with all of Galilee in attendance, this was the moment that Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, was going to rip off the mask and for the first time say, this is me. And his glory would be revealed to people. The process was relatively simple. We just read about it. Six ceremonial washing jars were filled with water. This, by the way, in a holy place would have been used to sanctify regular everyday items. Basically, for lack of a better phrase, you have a fork. This is a regular fork. You eat with this fork. But when you want to use it for a holy feast, this fork is no longer good enough. It has to be clean. And not just with soap and, you know, in a sink. But it has to be dipped in the ceremonial wash jar. 
and brought out. And when it's brought out of the ceremonial wash jar, it's been made clean. There were six of those, 20 to 30 gallons each. That's very heavy and a lot of water, later a lot of wine. But the number six is interesting because it's a representation of imperfection, not complete. Something isn't right. An important detail that he could have easily skipped over, but he threw it in here for a reason. Something was incomplete. Something wasn't right. So Jesus took these jars, filled them with water, and then turned that water to wine. I am a 21st century Marysville-ite who lives in America. I have never been a Jew. I have never studied like a Jew. But to a first century Jew who's reading this after it was written, this is a profoundly beautiful moment. Because in this representation, you have in a holy building, with a holy item, Jesus turning the water into wine. Changing what was to what will be. The blandness of the water to the vibrancy of wine. This is a representation to the whole world that what was is gone. And something new has come. A very clear and stark contrast. Water to wine. Old to new. Dead to alive. With that backdrop, let's jump into the story. As Jesus, the man who cares for the individual, enters into the place where God meets man, and he reveals that what was is no more, and what is to come is forever. There are three things he uses here, three images, three of the key, I guess, symbols or motifs that we have. The jars, the water, and the wine. And in all three of these, we have a very powerful image being painted for us. Let's zone in on each one and see what each of these symbols mean. Let's tie it together at the end. Jackson, Jackson in class today said the funniest thing. He goes, I know at the end all of this is going to make sense, but boy, it's a trip. So buckle up. The jars. What was clean will be made unclean. And what was unclean will be made clean in Jesus. Sanctification, the process of making the ordinary extraordinary, or the regular holy in the eyes of God. For people and items in the temple, it was, like we said, dipping it in water. But for people, in order to do certain rituals, you had to put your hands in it. Just a representation of... Ordinary, holy. That's the idea. This was one of the most important things in Jewish culture. Because purity was one of the most important things in Jewish culture. Being right before God, being holy and set apart. These were the ideals that drove the Jews in all that they did. And still do. They want to be set apart and holy. But the problem was, is our human definition of clean became over the years. God had a definition of clean in the Torah. But by the first century, that was not what the people viewed as clean. In many ways, what was to be clean in Judaism was to be the father of a household with some wealth and literacy. And you had to know the Torah. You had to be able to quote it and live it right. It was a natural-born Jew who had descendants going hundreds of years back. That's what it meant to be pure and holy in the eyes of God according to the Jews. Well, 
Let me tell you, I don't know if you've uh, looked at the apostles any time recently. Jesus took that and turned it completely on its head. Jesus worked to redefine what is clean and what is unclean in the sight of God. It had nothing to do with whether you were a natural-born Jew or a Gentile. It had nothing to do if you were a man or if you were a woman. If you understood everything perfectly or if you didn't, that was not what mattered to God. That did not define your purity and your cleanliness before the Lord. You could be holy and normal. And he constantly showed us that. How many tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners did Jesus surround himself with and make holy those things that weren't? How many times did he make clean the socially unclean? See, the Jews missed their mark because they were so absorbed in their own self-righteous judgment and their own piety and their own legalism that when Jesus came to show who was clean, they missed it. Isaiah chapter 60, you don't have to turn here. I promise you wouldn't have to go flipping all over the place. Just listen. Nations, come to your light. Kings, come to your bright light. Look all around you. They gather and they come to you. Your sons come from far away. And the daughters of others come from far away. They are escorted by guardians themselves. Then at that time you will look and you will smile. You will be excited and your heart will swell with pride. For the riches of all the distant lands and all of its people will belong to you. And the wealth of all the world will come to you. The whole point of Judaism wasn't to segue yourself off into some Mount Zion and wait for Jesus to return. It was to go be with people and make clean the unclean and holy the ordinary. But they missed it. So Jesus came, and in this one moment, he reminded us. He took the ceremonial washing jars, the representation of purity and cleanliness, the process of making things holy. He filled it with water, and then just to show what he felt about it, he turned it to wine. He made the clean ritual unclean. Never again, after being changed or touched with anything from a vine, could that item ever once again be used for a holy purpose. Jesus, in effect, took all of the holy jars in the temple, synagogue, and he lined them up and he went, and they were gone. Never again to be used. He was shutting down the doors and opening up something new. He took the thing that was clean and made it unclean so that he could make the unclean clean. Every single person who drank from that ceremonial wash jar was being sanctified, but not to the law, but to the Christ. Transformed not in the, the, the ways of old, but transformed into something vibrant and new. And thank goodness. Because the representation of how God wanted to start his first miracle was turning the clean unclean. And giving us, the unclean, a chance at holiness. My question for us is how are we doing on this? This is a really condemning point for us, if we're not careful, as we fall into the same category, right? We get lost in our holiness and our self-righteousness, our piety and religious judgment that we have taken the wine Jesus had and made it water again. The whole point is we are doing something new, something vibrant, something different, Let's be vibrant and different. Let's show the world that there is a message that says, regardless of who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, you can be something different in God. 
to all the people that are in our lives every day that struggle with so many things, depression and anxiety, that come from past with addictions, whatever it is, they have a chance at something new because of this vibrant thing that God came to create. Guys, there should be an immense joy that we have a part of that. Because I was someone who is unclean, who is now clean because of the wine, because of the blood of Christ that flowed from the tree of Calvary. You are too. Glory be to God because of you. Let's move on. Second image, the water. As always, that was the longest one. Make it shorter. Figure, get the hardest one out of the way. The water. God brings life to what is dead and death to what is alive. God brings life to what is dead and death to that which is alive. Water. What an interesting image in the Bible. Not going to go too much into it. Dad covered it a couple weeks ago. Um, One thing that's amazing as we do these sermons, study, we find so often that the same symbols come over and over and over again. And once you see the symbol, the whole story changes. That kind of naturally happened with this one. Water is the force of death and destruction. It's always been the force of death and destruction. It's the oldest image in the Bible. God, at the very beginning of creation, hovered over, do you remember, the face of the waters, and it was chaotic. The first image is the chaos of pre-creation in the form of the waters. Then God ordered the chaos, right? He took out of the chaotic waters, he brought life, earth, land, the universe, all around it. The image that he took the chaos and brought good, he brought out of death, life. Problem was, water is not going to go away so easy as the Jews thought. The chaos and death that it brings never stops. We don't have to go very long before Genesis chapter 6 happens, and the flood comes and floods the entire earth. It brings death to life. Once again, water is chaos. But then in the Red Sea, we go and we see that it's split, and the people come out of it. They go in dead in oppression, and they come out alive, death to life. And I could keep going back and forth, but I think you get the image. Death to life life to death. Water is the form of chaos, destruction. So too, I think it's interesting that in this story, water takes a center stage. Just like in sanctification, the idea is that you take whatever you're trying to make holy, you stick it into this representation of death, all the stuff on it dies, it comes out alive, new, and holy. We talked about how that reflects perfectly baptism not too long ago. But specifically, In this, I want us to focus in on what Jesus is trying to show here. He is bringing life to death and death to what is alive. One thing I find fascinating about the Jewish religion and culture at this time is how far it had strayed. And in so many ways, Paul, who was, in his own terms, even after he was an apostle, a Jew of all Jews, he talks a lot about how the law brought nothing but condemnation. It it chained people up. It made them enslaved. These are the terms he used for the law because of what it had become. And God understood that as long as we're chained to that, we'll never be free of anything. So he came to bring death to that so we could have life. And that which was once alive now dies. In many ways, this image, this first miracle, is going to be a segue for the rest of his ministry as Jesus comes to bring death to that which was and life to that which wasn't. Romans chapter 6 begins with a really powerful line, or it has a powerful line. It says, for though we were dead, for though we were dead, now we have 
water's image changed in the life of Christ. We talked about it at baptism, and we'll talk about it again here. Water no longer became a force of death and destruction because Christ destroyed all death and destruction on the cross. When he came out of the waters, there was no more death, there was no more destruction, so water had lost its metaphor. I find it fascinating here that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, all, he already leaned that direction, pointed to how the story was going to end. Death and destruction in the form of water was going to, it ran rampant. It was, it was all through the Old Testament. It was the prophecies everywhere. Jesus looked at the water and smiled, snapped his fingers, and boom, it's no longer water. Death and destruction is no longer there. The metaphor for what happens in wrath and judgment is gone. And all freely drink it. I find it fascinating that when we set that as the center point of the story, we see ourselves so easily in it. I love putting myself in the story as like an imaginative exercise, and I'd invite you to do the same sometime. You really get a lot out of it. But in this moment, step into the story for just a moment and watch as the water, the the destructive force, the chaos is turned into wine, and everyone who drinks it celebrates because it's gone. What was there was no more. And what you'll find if you're anything like me is I too feel the excitement when I come into the presence of Christ. Because what I was was no more. He brought death to my life so he could bring life out of my death. Third image, the wine. The wine itself. So the wine itself is a representation throughout the Old Testament of wrath. We see it all the way through. For time's sake, I'm not going to read you all the passages I have. I'll read you a couple, just so you can get the flavor. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 17. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made the nations whom he sent, uh, who he sent me to drink the wine of his wrath. I made Jerusalem and its cities, and on and on and on, drink all of its intoxicating value. Wrath. The cup of wrath, represented as a cup of wine. Obadiah chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. For just as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink from this goblet continually. They will drink, and they will drink, and they will gulp down, and they will be as though they had never been. The cup of wrath. But the most famous of the passages, and the one Jesus is actually tying to here, is Isaiah chapter 51, which starts like this. Wake up. Wake up and get up, O Jerusalem. You drank from the cup the Lord has passed you, which was full of his wrath and full of his anger. You drained dry the goblet full of intoxicating wine, and there was no one to lead you. And there was no one to take your hand. These double disasters confronted you, but who can feel sorry for you? Destruction and devastation and famine and sword, but who consoles you? Your children faint. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a snare. They are left in the stupor of God's anger to the battle of your Lord. So listen to this one, oppressed one, one who has drunk and is drunk from the wine of God's wrath. This is it. This is what the sovereign Lord says unto you. You can see it's building, right? He's getting more and more angry. It's coming. The destruction is upon us. What is the consequence of God's wrath? These double disasters are nothing in comparison to what's coming. What's coming? Verse 22. Look, I have removed from your hand the intoxicating wine and the goblet full of my anger. And you never shall drink it again. This was a huge moment when you were reading it. You're listening to that story. You're expecting the condemnation. And then, boom, at the last minute when the hammer's about to drop. This is like a Marvel movie when, like, the superhero's about to end the villain. The credits roll. There's nothing. It's gone. 
This image is used over and over and over again. The cup of wrath, the cup of wrath, the cup of wrath, the cup of wrath. And yet when in John 2 the people drank from the wine, there wasn't fear of wrath. There was celebration and joy. And on the moment they drank the wine, it was no longer a metaphor for what judgment was coming upon them. It was, it was something different. It was a cup of, of life. Matthew chapter 26 kind of gives us a reason why. While they were eating Jesus at the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread and after giving it thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he said to them, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood. The blood of this covenant that is poured out for the many, for, uh, forgiveness of many sins. What we have here is this image that's changed. It's no longer a cup of wrath in Jesus. Because a couple verses later in Matthew 26, verse 38, he falls on the ground and is praying to God. Do you remember what his prayer was to his father? Lord, if it may, let this cup pass from me. The cup of wrath that he drank so we didn't. Therefore, in John chapter 2, and just follow me, just follow me. When they're drinking of the wine, they are drinking of the first ever communion cup. In that moment, they are drinking the first time that the cup of wrath is not destructive and representative of judgment to the world, but rather they're celebrating in the life that it gives. God transformed the image. He changed it. No longer is it bringing wrath, but it's bringing celebration. No longer is it bringing death, but life. No longer is it bringing the unclean, but the clean. As God takes the cup of wrath and changes it to a cup of life. And this is where the promise of the story comes to its conclusion, its, its head. Because this image from long ago being poured out for the wrath of sins, God brought us wine that was representative of his life. One thing that sticks out to me is the last line, the last line of John 2. Everyone serves the good wine first, and then he keeps the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. Yet you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus waited until we had become drunk on our own sins. Until we had drunk from the cup of wrath over and over and over and over and over again until we were compelled by it. And at that point, it's in that moment that Jesus revealed the good wine. And replaced it with something different. The, the wine of our suffering replaced with the wine of promise. And it was only because he was willing to drink that on our behalf. The cup of wrath that should have been mine was his. And the cup of life that I should never have had, I now do. The place where God and man met. The place of ceremonial cleanliness with the representation of death that he made life. And unholiness that he made holy. And wrath that he made celebration. We see the inauguration of an upside-down kingdom with an upside-down savior that would continue to go on and confound and confuse the world. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about it. Because every symbol he turned on its head, every motif he changed, every part of the story he rewrote, and most, impo most importantly to me and to you, everything that should have been ours is not. And everything we couldn't have even dreamed of in our wildest dreams is now ours through him. We have life where we should have died. We're holy when we should have been unclean. And we can celebrate. We can celebrate in a future of eternity that we could never have deserved. This is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. The first thing he ever does. 
and what a way to reveal his glory. As we stand here today, before us the cup of life that can be ours freely through the grace of Christ. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you've been or what you've done. But what I do know is this, that that cup of life can be yours. And the hope that comes in Christ can be yours. He can take everything and turn it into a celebration. He can take all of your past and make it clean. He can wipe it away as if it never happened because of the power of a sacrifice. I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ, but I do know this. Take the next step today. Whatever that step is, let's take it together. There will be leaders right back there behind, those, behind that table in front of those brown doors that want nothing more to talk to you about this beautiful idea of baptism, salvation, and heaven that could be yours. If there's any way we can help you, please let us know as together we stand and we sing.